use it, Lord, to comfort, to correct, to convict, and Lord, to just counsel. Whatever's needed, you know what each heart needs, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Luke 21, picking up with verse 20. We did verses 1 through 19 last week. Verse 20, Luke 21, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And then let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains, those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not those who are in her country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars and on the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity, the seas and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear of expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. And then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you know, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. And so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest you be weighed down with carousing, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man." In the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, quite a bit of uh, heavy words that Jesus is sharing here, huh? And if you're with us last week, just as a quick recap, this all starts because Jesus had been teaching in the temple. He had dealt with the accusations against him. Remember, they tried to trap him in his words. They couldn't trap him in his words. He refuted the Sadducees. He refuted the Pharisees. He refuted the scribes and the Herodians and the religious leaders. And they tried to trap him in his words. And after he was done handling all their questions and disarming them and actually explaining their hypocrisy, and everyone kind of saw, hey, these guys are not the spiritual giants that they act to be. They really are. Uh, opposed to God. Well, then he leaves the temple area. This is, again, going to last week. He leaves the temple area, and they go straight east out to the Mount of Olives, which faces back towards the temple. We looked at the, the angle that they would have been sitting at. And as they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives, they're looking down on that massive temple complex that Herod had built. And for whatever reason, the sun hitting the building, just kind of the, 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 all the thousands upon thousands of people that are there during the Passover season that are pouring into that temple, that magnificent ancient wonder of the world, more than five football fields in length and all the size and magnificence and beauty and gold and marble. And the disciples say, look at this, Lord. 
And Jesus takes that occasion for them to say, wow, is that building not amazing? Jesus says, you think that building's amazing? It will not be there in the future. It'll be completely gone. Every stone unturned. And remember, we talked about that this would have been foreign to anyone's ears. I mean, what is he talking about? The temple being destroyed? You know? Like, this, like the Capitol building that's on our currency just all of a sudden gone? Something like that. I mean, this is, this is epic, big news, not news that anyone would have wanted to hear. It wasn't a happy message that Jesus was giving. Hey, that, that temple won't be there. It'll be gone. And then he goes from there because then they, they're, they're what it, when, when will these things take place? Then they ask him, when will you be coming back? They, they, still, don't, they, they still don't understand that he's going to die for their sins. They still don't understand he's going to be crucified. But they do think he's going away and coming back. But whatever that meant in their minds, they think he's leaving and coming back. When are you coming back? What will be the signs of the end? You know, what will be the signs of the end? And uh, what will the end times look like? What will the end of the age look like? And then Jesus proceeds to, he doesn't tell them exactly, he doesn't say, I will be returning January the 25th, 2022. He doesn't say that. But he, and he doesn't even tell them when the temple will be destroyed. That happens in when? A.D. 70. Titus and the Romans destroy it. Titus, the son of Vespasian, comes in, destroys uh, the temple, and also levels the city. We'll look at that in just a second. But all that will take place in AD 70. He doesn't tell them the time when that will take place. He says it will take place. And then he says beyond that, these are the other things that will happen at the end of the age. And, oh, by the way, the whole world will see me return. But they still don't know that he'll be returning with nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet. Even though he's told them that three times, it still hasn't sunk in. You ever have things God's told you that haven't sunk in yet? Yeah, that's why you're at church. That's why I'm at church. Remember, every time I preach to you, I'm preaching to me too because I have the same Bible you do. And God says, everything you speak, I want you to do it too. I want you to live it, understand it, get to know it, follow it. If you're taking notes this morning, our time in God's Word this morning is it will all come to pass. Do you believe that? you believe all these things will come to pass? They absolutely will. They'll come to pass more than some of the other things that we think will come to pass. Matter of fact, a lot of things we worry about won't come to pass. We'll address that a little bit too. And if you're taking notes this morning, just understand that um, Jesus really wants us to understand these things, but as we understand them, to be wise and gentle in this world during these times. That these things, he, he's telling his disciples really to settle them and center them, not to unsettle them. See, the things that Satan wants to do with bad news is unsettle you. The thing God wants to do is center you. Big difference, right? Satan wants to use bad news, difficult times to unsettle you, disturb you, and God wants to use these things to settle your faith and anchor it to the chief cornerstone. The first thing we want to take a look at this morning is what I've titled the certain destruction. And this is uh, the destruction of Jerusalem takes place in verses 20 through 24. Um, Luke's gospel does not record all of the full Olivet Discourse. So Luke records a portion of it, doesn't record every single thing that Jesus said that day. 
In fact, none of the Gospels record all of what Jesus said. Uh, Though taken together, they give us a composite view of Jesus' prophetic sermon. That makes sense? So if you take Matthew, you take Mark, and you take Luke, you get a composite view, you get a more full view of everything that Jesus uh, discussed there on the Mount of Olives. Mark and Matthew's gospel, if you go and read um, the Olivet Discourse and Matthew and Mark, they're very similar, and they follow the same sermon flow. Uh, Matthew has the most detail. Matthew chapter 24, it has the most detail, the most words, it's the most comprehensive uh, and where Luke and Mark, they both end, the Olivet Discourse with Luke and Mark, they both end with this watching and waiting. Matthew, well, he records uh, not just uh, the watching and waiting, he does as well, but he doesn't end with that. Matthew records in chapter 25, Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish virgins, uh, the parable of the talents, and finally, Christ judging the world at the end of the tribulation, and you'll remember hearing this at previous Bible studies, maybe other church you've been to, the dividing of the sheep and goats. That's at the end of chapter 25 of Matthew, and it, it is the addendum, it's the extension of the Olivet Discourse, where he divides the sheep and the goats, and that takes place at the end of the tribulation period. That's not the great white throne judgment. That would take place at the end of the millennium reign of Christ. I probably should have put another timeline up. It helps you understand these things. But remember, we're in the church age right now. Maybe I can... We're in the church age, right? Cross to right now. We're in the church age. Right after the church age, there's a little sliver of time called the seven-year tribulation. The world will be in travail like never before. The last three and a half of those seven is called the great tribulation, also called the time of Jacob's trouble. At the end of that little sliver of seven years is a thousand-year reign where Jesus Christ will set up his throne, which you'll, if you come on Wednesday at Ezekiel, we'll finish up with that. Uh, that thousand years, he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. At the end of that thousand years, there's one final revolt by mankind against God, and then comes the great white throne judgment, where all who have never been saved are cast into the lake of fire, which even hell is cast into the lake of fire. Okay? Because hell is a temporary place. The lake of fire is the permanent place of uh, punishment and torment, and heaven is the permanent place of glory and peace in the presence of the Lord. So Jesus here is, uh, when, he, when Matthew finishes with the 25th chapter, which has the three parables, the wise and foolish virgins, the parable of the talents, the sheep and the goats is not actually a parable, I should say. The sheep and the goats is actually just illustrative of saved and unsaved. That's at the end of the tribulation period. And so Matthew has the more definitive, but Luke has a lot of really important things here, of course. The Luke's Gospel, it does give us some details in Jesus' sermon that are not found in the other two Gospels, specifically as it relates to Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because remember, Jesus is speaking... What is the center of all the prophecy? Jerusalem and Israel. We'll see that in the text again. Look at your Bibles where Jesus says uh, in verses 20 through 24, um, he says here, uh, but those, these are the days of, verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance that all things will be written. Uh, And he says at the end of 23, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. He's speaking of this people being 
Jerusalem and Israel collectively. The Holocaust was bad, one of the worst things in human history. But the Antichrist will unleash a final reign of terror against Israel that will be at least equivalent, but in many ways worse, because it will be in their own land where he will be hunting down to destroy the Jewish race, that the Antichrist will deceive them with three and a half years of a peace pro- It was supposed to be a seven-year peace agreement. He's going to deceive them. Middle of the- He's going to break it. He's going to set up his own throne in the temple. But long before that happens, long before that happens, Jesus is talking about, first, Jerusalem's destruction. Look, go back to verse 20, where he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. In the history of Jerusalem... The city has been attacked 52 times. It's been besieged 23 times. And it's been recaptured by various armies, various rulers, 44 times. Even in our lifetime, Jerusalem continues to endure random terror attacks, whether it's stabbings on a bus, uh, you know, small detonations, incoming rockets. And yet the city for all of its constant, I mean, just down through the ages, constant turmoil. Do you realize Jerusalem's only been destroyed twice? Twice. But when Jesus is speaking, guess how many times have it been destroyed? Once. Through all of the many besieges and attacks and battles and everything else, it had only been destroyed one time. In AD 30, Jerusalem was destroyed 506 years 86, uh, sorry, 600 years earlier in 586 B.C. by Babylon. So when Jesus is speaking, this was long, long before anyone in Jerusalem had been alive. America's been around a little over 200 years. Jerusalem had been destroyed 600-plus years earlier, three times longer than we've been a nation. So anyone in Jerusalem, that was a foreign concept. What do you mean this city? This city had one destruction 600 years ago. God let that happen once, but he'll never let it happen again. And Jesus says, oh, but he will. Little did they know, less than 40 years later, it would happen again, the second time. It's only happened two times. And so in addition to him saying that the temple would be destroyed, which had also only happened one other time, in the same 586 B.C., under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Jesus proclaims for the second time now in just a few days that the entire city will be surrounded, besieged, and leveled to the ground. Where else did he say that? Look in your Bibles at chapter 19 for just a second. Look at verses 42 through 44. If you're here with us a few weeks ago, we read these verses, but I want to remind you this was the first time Jesus said the city would be destroyed. This is the second time he says it. Verses 42 through 44, if you had known even this day, especially you in this day, that what makes for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Verse 42, verse 19, but the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Take that passage with what he says in the Olivet Discourse, verses 20 through 24, And now he gives the complete picture that Jerusalem is surrounded, destroyed, leveled. And you know, remember when he said that? What did it say in verse 41? As he drew near the city, he wept over it. Jesus doesn't say this like, (laughs) you scoundrels, 
you guys are going down. He wept over this. Let me ask a question, Chris. Do you weep over the fact that people will die in destruction in their sins? D.L. Moody, when he was in London, I've told this before, I'll tell it again, because some of you I know haven't heard it. D.L. Moody was in London one time, and he's standing there up in a, in a building with, with another pastor. He's going to preach in the city, and he looks out over the city, and he asks the pastor, he says, well, what do you see out there? He says, I see people walking around, I see people uh, milling around, I see people shopping, and D.L. Moody said, that's your problem. I see souls slipping into eternity. What do you see? This is what Jesus saw. He understood the gravity of what was coming. You know, uh, Moses warned of this same thing. Uh, you get a little Bible lesson today. Turn with me to Duke, uh, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Um, all the way back in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, often called the passage of blessings and cursings, Deuteronomy 28. Um, Moses... In verses 49 through 52, tells us something many hundreds of years before it ever happens. And Jesus is really telling of what Moses was telling about way back uh, in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 28, look at verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand a nation of fierce countenance which does not respect the elderly, no show favor to the young. What did Jesus say? Even the, even the young would be killed, Luke chapter 19. And they, uh, and they shall eat the, crease, and the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave grain and new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or offspring of your flocks. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls, which you trust, come down throughout all the land. They shall besiege you at all your gates, Throughout all the land which your Lord, your God, has given you. Now, at this time, Israel's in the wilderness. They don't have any city gates. They don't even have any cities. Moses is telling them there's going to come a time when you have a majestic city full of gates, which Jerusalem did, and you'll have high walls, which Jerusalem did, and a nation will come from afar. But this prophecy will be fulfilled twice because the first nation from afar with a fierce disposition and a language they didn't understand was Babylon. 586 B.C. Remember, we talked about prophecy has a fulfillment that goes like this. It spins up to the highest fulfillment. What's the last highest fulfillment? The Antichrist. He'll have a bigger kingdom than the first two. He'll have the whole world, and he will come against Jerusalem a third, at least a third time. If not, there'll be some before then, but minimum. So the prophecy fulfills. Moses says, you'll have your cities, you'll forsake God, and you'll be destroyed by a land that will come, or language that will come from a different direction. Far as the eagle flies, the eagle was prominent in both Babylon and in uh, and in Roman uh, Roman symbolism. So Babylon comes first, 586 BC, 70 AD. Then comes Titus and the Romans, and both of them besiege the city. Both of them destroy the temple. Both of them kill many people and carry them away into slavery, what Moses talked about. Uh, by the way, Moses, uh, we talked about this last week, um, many things authenticate the prophecies of Jesus, but we talked about that Jesus, according to, uh, according to um, the same book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, and him shall you hear. Now, we talked about not only would that prophecy include people like John the Baptist, Elijah, David, 
But most specifically, that is a messianic prophecy. Remember, prophecy fulfilling again in a cycle until it spins up to the highest epicenter or the highest crescendo being Jesus himself. Because when Moses says, God will raise up someone like me, we have a, a very intriguing verse at the end of Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the end of the book, uh, it says, and we believe that this last few verses were not written by Moses. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. We believe that the last few verses, I believe, were either written by Joshua or another prophet inserted these, as the Holy Spirit said, finish out the autobiography with these few verses. Because it says, but since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all signs and wonders in which he did the land of Egypt and the power before Pharaoh and all his servants and all the mighty power and great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Now Jesus would come. He would be greater than Moses. So whoever wrote that said, in all of human history, you've never seen another prophet like Moses until Yeshua. Because he would know God face to face. And he will do greater signs and wonders in the world than Moses did. Isn't that cool? These are the things that authenticate Jesus' prophecy. He said the temple would be destroyed. It would. He said Jerusalem would be destroyed. It would. Moses said there would be a guy like me, but greater than me. It will be Jesus. By the way, one last thing. Can you imagine preaching what Moses preached and getting away with this? I want to read you one. I just have to do this. This is what Moses said in one of his sermons near the end of his life. Check this out. Many pastors would be run out on a rail if they preached like this. Watch this. This is Moses speaking. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt, and you will turn aside upon the way which I, uh, against the way I have commanded you, and you... And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. How about that? That's, near the, that's one of Moses' last messages. And this is what Moses is saying. Because you will t- God will bless you with lots of possessions and wealth and goodness, and you'll have all the things, and you might even be a really free country. You'll take all of that and you'll say, I don't need God anymore. Moses said, this is what's going to happen. Because of that, calamity is going to befall you. Church, we need to hear the words of Moses still today. That's why in the book of Revelation, they sing the song of Moses, the redeemed. Let's look at the next thing in our text this morning. A certain shaking. We looked at a certain destruction, a certain shaking. So we know that Jesus tells us definitively that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Um, Remember that he's speaking of Jerusalem's destruction, and not only is he speaking of AD 70, he's looking forward to the surrounding of Jerusalem that will take place again when? In the middle of the tribulation period, right about the three-and-a-half-year mark or thereabouts, and there will be a a final fulfillment of that surrounding. Then he moves, he shifts gears here, uh, verse 25. Um, One one last thing, sorry, one last thing in verse 24. Uh, just to highlight in your Bible. It says, in Jerusalem we trample by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. Understand that since AD 70, uh, almost all of that time, until 1948, Jerusalem was under the control of the Gentiles. Right? Rome had it. Ottoman Empire had it. 
The British Empire had it, right? 1948, post-World War II, Israel becomes a nation. They finally have control of Jerusalem, but not even the whole city. It wasn't until the Six-Day War that they gained the old city from Jordan, who had that part of the city. And today, although Israel has control of the city, the Temple Mount is still trampled by Islam. Right? The Bible's right. It is still being trampled by the Gentiles, but we know if you get to the Millennium Reign of Christ... There is no trampling the temple there. You can't even enter the temple unsaved if you've been with us on our Wednesday night studies. So the temple right now, the temple mount, Dome of the Rock sits there, still trampled by the Gentiles. You can go to some communities where they're not Jewish communities where they just throw the trash right out the window. I got pictures of it when we're there. Still trampled. But that'll be changing. Jesus shifts gears, verse 25, and there will be signs. So he's speaking of the tribulation period here. Verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them. So Jesus informs us that a day is coming when the entire earth will sway and wobble and weave. You don't want to be on the earth at this point, folks, when this day is coming. Both physically, the earth really will be shaking like a leaf, the Bible tells us that in the book of Isaiah and other places. And then the human turmoil will be shaking. You ever, you ever been nervous enough that you feel like you're shaking? You ever seen other people nervous enough they're like they're shaking? What he describes here is utterly frightening in verses 25 and 26. He's describing the wrath of God, also known as the day of the Lord, described by other biblical prophecies in that term. But it's also referred to, as I mentioned earlier, as the Great Tribulation. It's the seven-year period, but even more intense is the last three and a half years. That last three and a half years is really beyond our comprehension. Turn with me again. We're going the opposite direction. We were way in the Pentateuch. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6. This verse gives us, or these couple of verses, give us a better understanding of what it is Jesus is speaking about. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. You guys are being great Bible students this morning, turning through your Bibles or your iPads or whatever it is. iPads don't make that cool sound of pages. Thank you, Gutenberg and others, right? Revelation 6, starting verse 12, And I looked, and behold, the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of the heavens fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs, and shaken a mighty wing. Notice the fig tree is mentioned again, by the way. The sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Can you imagine a time in Hawaii, Greenland, Australia all move at the same time? Japan, every island. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the commanders, and the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves, and the rocks, and the mountains. Can you imagine a time when billionaires are running out of Midtown Manhattan to the same caves that homeless people are? And, to them said, and they said to the mountains and rocks, Follow us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the who? The Lamb. Mankind will know who this is. Signs greater than Moses. 
a man greater than Moses, the king of kings and the lamb of God. And people will know they won't use Jesus' name as a swear word at that time. They'll call it the wrath of the lamb. For this is the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is what Jesus is speaking of. You can turn back to Luke 21. This is what he's describing. What a time that will be. I plan to be in heaven looking down with the Lord, or not even knowing what's going on down there. I mean, I just plan to be with Jesus. How about you? This is the wrath of those who have rejected Christ. But many will be saved during that period, so understand that many will come to Christ during that time. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be, imagine 144,000 apostle Pauls traipsing the earth, sealed by God, protected by God, bringing people to Christ, but yet it'll be terrible. Now we see these things uh, that are going to take place are just magnificently destructive things in nature. Things in the heavens, things in the earth. And we see some of the precursors of this today. God gives us shots over the bow to remind us that his power is beyond our comprehension. And God uses just as much his love to call us, but he also uses his warning to call us. Right? When you were a kid, your parents would show you a lot of love. But every now and then, dad would say, son... You cross this line, you're going to have a problem. And if you knew they meant business, it would get your attention in a really good way. Well, God gives us some shots over the bow today to remind us that, hey, what I've said is coming, really is coming. Think about um, the 8.9 magnitude tsunami off the coast of Sendai just a few years ago, five years ago now, this very week. Five years ago this week, it was March 11th, 2011. This very week, five, year, five, five years ago, it was as ominous and frightening and surreal images to watch as anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. And in ancient history, we had no way to record these things. We only had people writing about them. Um, two years later, uh, also right around now, two years later, ago, two years later last month in February, uh, of two thir- uh, 2013, February 15, 2013, was the asteroid that entered the Earth's atmosphere uh, completely undetected by all of our equipment. NASA didn't know it was coming. Do you realize that asteroid that went over Russia it came in completely undetected? No one had a clue it was coming because its radius was inside the sun's radius and, and there was no way to detect it. Hmm. None of our advanced space space equipment was able to detect it. It comes hurtling through the atmosphere at 40,000 miles per hour. Fortunately for Russia and the rest of the world, uh, the majority of its uh, kinetic energy, equivalent to 20 to 30 times the energy of Hiroshima, was absorbed by the atmosphere as it entered. Fortunately for us. But people in that region... They not only saw the intense flash, but they actually felt the intense heat for several seconds in some cases from the fireball that exploded, and it exploded 18 miles above the surface of the earth. Give you an idea, that's three times higher than Mount Everest, more than three times higher than commercial jets fly. And it was brighter than the sun, and people could feel its heat, and God is just giving a whisper. Don't you think? 
Say, this is just a little bit of what I can do. You couldn't detect it. You didn't know it was coming. You had no idea, and it came, and it was a flash. Actually, what Jesus describes his own coming will be a flash like that. The air blast and the shock wave damaged 7,200 buildings in six cities, caved in roofs, created a seismic 2.7 on the Richter scale, and that was wind-generated and shockwave-generated, not subterranean-generated. Unbelievable. More than 1,500 people were injured. No deaths by the grace of God. Windows blown out, sent flying as projectiles. Other things just unbelievable. Luke also mentions the sea roaring. Well, we've seen the devastating tsunamis, like I mentioned, Sendai, but also the one in the Indian Ocean. Um, but many hurricanes and many typhoons, like Katrina. You had, uh, or how about the, the super typhoon that took place in the Philippines just a couple of years ago? One of the strongest ever recorded in human history. At times, the winds were 195 miles per hour, Category 5. They're still finding bodies a year later. And NASA gives us an unbelievable images of what's going on in space, but it also tells us of what could happen with the solar storms. We know if one happened like that in 1859, it would actually knock out all of our power, and your smartphone would be rendered useless immediately. So all of these signs are there. We also have the wars right now. We have the uh, terrorism. We have economic uh, tremors. We have things like 9-11, things like Paris. And all these things are foreshadowing. But even bigger things are coming, Jesus says. Whatever you see happening, bigger things are coming. In the tribulation, the sun, the moon will be darkened. There'll be signs in the heavens that we've never seen before that will tell the world definitively, Jesus has spoken. And it will cause some to repent. It will cause some to shake their fist at God. Every island moved. Billions will die. Intense heat. Folks, you do not want to be there in that time. Nobody would want to be there. We have many unsaved people, and perhaps people of the church too, that are prepping for a global meltdown. You've seen this show, Preppers and stuff? There's a lot of people unsaved. They don't read the Bible, they're not saved, and they themselves are convinced there's a global meltdown coming. Or a wave of natural disasters. Or perhaps some government implosion or government uh, unification crackdown. And yet the Bible says all those things are going to take place. Many video games, this is the theme. This is what your teens and college boys enjoy playing. End of the world, end of the world, end of the world. Hollywood makes movie after movie about this, and people flock to it. Many are strangely attracted and entertained by the threats of the future. Isn't that odd? They are like a moth is to light. Right? Like a, you know, a deer is to the front of a car. Is strangely attracted to it. I'm not attracted to the future end of the world. Are you? I'm attracted to the future of living forever with the king of kings. But nevertheless, many are strangely attracted to it. Others are highly motivated. That's why they're prepping. That's why they're building cellars and you know digging eight wells in their yard and all these things, which, by the way, one earthquake could destroy all their prepping. One asteroid could destroy all their prepping. So you know, be careful that you're... Make sure you've got a Joseph moment from God to know it'll work. Because you can overdo it, but 
What about biblical prophecy? What about the source of God telling us what to do? Should we care what biblical prophecy says? Are we to be afraid or informed? Are we to be built up or barely keeping it together? Are we to have our heads looking up or our heads in the sand? Good questions. You know, when it comes to biblical prophecy, even in the church, uh, I find you'll find three groups of people that we don't want to be. Three groups of people that we don't want to be. The first is they completely ignore biblical prophecy and pay no attention to it whatsoever. They have zero interest in it. I don't want to hear it. Not interested. You talk about it. I'm not interested. We don't want to be that group. Number two, there's those that purposely avoid any thought or discussion of biblical prophecy because the thoughts are unpleasant. Right? Hey, there's lots of things in life that are unpleasant, but we still have to understand them. These things, you know, you can't just completely ignore them because you're not interested. You can't completely ignore them because of fear. And third, we have actually Christians in the body of Christ that are fixated on prophecy almost to the exclusion of everything else. You ever run into these folks? Every time you meet them, they're te- they got a new book. And that fixation is often more about knowledge and information, though. They often lack joy and are so focused on the future that they're not showing the love of Christ in the present. Right? You can't be so focused on the future that you're not showing Jesus now. You still have kids to raise. You still have families to reach. You still have love to show. So, you know, those three groups we don't want to be. We don't want to be completely uninterested. We don't want to be completely avoiding because it's, it's a frightening topic. And we don't want to be so fixated on it that we're not able to do the things Jesus is asking us to do right now, including laugh and enjoy people and reach out with grace, and, uh, but yet be willing to say things that no one else will say. I like to have a good time. I like to laugh, but I wouldn't hesitate to tell someone what God says either. Matter of fact, if we actually have a pleasant disposition, we'll have more opportunity to tell them because they'll be surprised that'll come from you. How can you smile and love life and know that's coming? Because I am going to be with Jesus. That's how. That makes sense? None of these positions are healthy, the three I mentioned. And understand that a quarter of the verses in the Bible deal with prophecy. So it is very important that we know and discern the times. Amen? A quarter of the verses. It's important to know and understand these times. Furthermore, if Jesus gave this prophetic, and the greatest prophetic sermon in the history of the world just days before the cross, as we talked about last week, speaking of the end of the age, and his own return, we know prophecy is important. We know it's important. He prioritized it before his death. And now he concludes the tribulation prophecies with his return. Look at the last, verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, actually, if you're saved, you'll be coming with him on this verse. You know the whole white horses thing? That's this verse. This is him coming back to the earth with a name written upon him, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is those that will be coming with him in glory, and I plan to have a really cool white horse right there in verse 27. You should, too, if you're born again. And he says he's coming, but this is not the rapture. This is the second coming. This is when his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. 
And this will be seen by all of humanity who has survived the seven-year tribulation. In Zechariah 12, 10, it says, Then they will look on him whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him. They won't just see that he's the king, but they'll see the nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet. Wow. But these things, knowing these things, Christian, they're to bring about transformation, not just head knowledge and information. You'll meet Christians that can tell you a lot about the end times, but they're not living like end times believers. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? See, prophecy should purify and strengthen our faith. It should purify and strengthen our faith. It should give us a joy to know that he's returning, and that's what he turns to next. Take a look at our next There we go. A certain coming. Verse 28. Jesus turns at this point. He says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now he's back talking to the church again. He's moved in the future. This is what happens to Jerusalem. This is what happens at the end of the age. Now when you see the rumblings, you you start looking up. Jesus turns at this point to the event that all creation awaits, and I believe he's speaking here, of the the birth pains that we're seeing already. He said, when these things start to rumble, when you see typhoons, when you see meteors, when you see all these things start to shake and take place, these are the birth pains that precede the tribulation period. Although if you were to come to Christ in the tribulation period, and as I said, many will, uh, you could pick up a Bible and be encouraged by Luke uh, Luke 21, 28. In other words, you could pick up the Bible and say, even though I missed the rapture, I can still look up because my redemption is still drawing near at the end of the tribulation period. And many will. But the emphasis here is when things begin to happen. When the signs he's outlined become more pronounced and more frequent, look up. Look up. How's your prayer life? Is it looking up? When the world looks like it's falling apart, look up. True? That's what he's saying. Why look up? Because you're closer to going home to heaven with your Lord and your Savior and your King. The best day you've ever had on earth doesn't even make a mark in heaven. The day you had your promotion, the day you had your first child, the wedding day, whatever it is, the best day you've ever had on earth is just like our life's filthy rags in heaven. He says, look up. Why? Closer to heaven, no more pain, no more Tylenol, no more sorrow, no more you're hungry right now, when and will I shut up, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) No more anxiety, no more frustration, no more disappointment, no more I thought you'd preach better than that, whatever it is. All of those things. You know, if you're born again, this applies not only to the signs of the earth falling apart. But I believe there's a good little parallel of a sign in our body falling apart. You think about it. Um, you see, this world is definitely falling apart, but so are our bodies. They get old, and, they, and the world's going to come to an end, and so will our bodies come to an end. And the signs should remind us in our bodies or in this world that we're closer to redemption. 
You see, once we're saved, our hearts have been renewed. This is at the soul level that you can't touch. It's not physically, tangibly touchable. You can't taste it, smell it, touch it. It's at the spirit-soul level where God has renewed the heart of us through salvation in the blood and mercy of Jesus Christ. That is a renewal. But even though we now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and we've been redeemed from the judgment to come, our bodies haven't been redeemed yet. Can I get an amen on that? Our bodies haven't been redeemed yet. It's 100% paid in full. The transaction's already been paid. But we still haven't gotten rid of the dying body, and we haven't received yet the perfect, sinless, heavenly body and the matching heavenly robes that go with it. That is paid in full, but it's delivered upon death. It is the best death benefit ever. Right? It's fully delivered upon death. Death of the body, get a new body, new life. But the spirit and soul, our names are already written in the land's book of life. So it's paid for now. But the redemption Jesus is talking about, he, the full consummation of the marriage is when we come and meet the Lord, either through death or the rapture, whichever comes first. Paul speaks of the big things in, in his letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. That's talking about the body. 2 Corinthians 5, 4, we are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, for mortality must be swallowed up by life. And then, you, do you hear that? This is the opposite. Death usually swallows everything. Paul says in this paradigm, when you know the Lord, life swallows it up. Isn't that awesome? That's why we're going to celebrate in two weeks the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because his life swallows death. Usually death swallows everything else. It's the complete opposite. This is a certain coming. Let's move on as we come to the last few minutes here, a certain acceleration. So this is verses 29 through 33. He speaks of the uh, fig tree here. He says, when you see this fig tree begin to bud, 